Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Side, a podcast about black science fiction, fantasy, and staying on the same page in this marriage. I am one of your incredible co-hosts, Amber Wallet. I'm Ben. And today we're jumping right into episode 26 of the Sci-Fi Side podcast because me and Ben sat down and watched the cult classic, 1985, Michael Schultz's The Last Dragon. Ben, we are quite excited. What was the, the inspiration around us picking this movie? Oh my goodness. So this movie was recommended to us by one of our listeners, Seth. And he told me that he had watched it 70 times, Mm. just over and over again. And I (laughs) I read some articles, and people have watched this movie like 80, 90 times. And also, I remember I was watching Insecure um, last season, and one of the movies that they had in the park that Issa and Molly went to go see was The Last Dragon. So I was like, I know that this is a very popular movie in the black community and other communities as well. So I I can't wait to get into it. It's a Kung Fu movie. What Kung Fu movies have you seen, Amber? Yeah, let's talk about Kung Fu. I have seen... So basically, if a movie was had Kung Fu in it that also had a black person co-sign it, I've seen it. So we got Rush Hour 1, 2, and 3. I've seen um, Romeo Must Die co-starring Aaliyah. I think that one had Jet Li and Aaliyah. Uh, I have seen The Karate Kid. There were no black, like the old school one, not the new Jaden Smith one. And I've also seen the the beloved Kung Fu Panda 1 and 2. So that you is know, the, the, the bulk of my... I think Kung Fu Panda <laughs> is actually more Kung Fu movie than a rush hour. Because for me, Kung Fu movies, you need some sort of young kid who like finds a sensei who then trains... That mm-hmm. why gets the training from the wise old sensei and then fights the major villain at the end and discovers that their true power is within them. That's mm-hmm. sort of like the Kung Fu arc. I'm sure people are going to disagree with me on that. Uh, there's all this uh, like subgenres of Kung Fu, but there isn't a whole lot of Kung Fu movies directed by black directors and starring black characters who are doing the kung fu and the last dragon exactly. is one of those movies yeah like when i think about even just rush hour it's like jackie chan does the the martial arts but he teaches chris tucker but chris tucker is also there i mean because he's the comedic relief which is which you know he's a comedian that makes sense but this is like this movie just shredded every black co-star stereotype well one because that there wasn't a black co-star it was like a black leading role and then the love interest was black as well yes she was yeah any stereotype of black people was like completely uh combated if you will in this whole movie i'm sure not all of them every single one okay yeah i'm gonna agree with you uh, so 1985, neither of us were alive there, but this had like a really big like 80s sort of feel. You were alive in 1985? I was not. I just had a light bulb moment of something really quickly, if, if, if you will. Uh, so we were just talking about The Karate Kid, right? Yeah. As, as one of the movies that I've seen with Mr. Miyagi, a beloved classic. Didn't you tell me, because speaking of like 
1985 and things like that. Didn't you tell me you met the Karate Kid once yes. and he's a complete asshole? Well, yeah. So he lived in a neighborhood that, the same neighborhood that uh, some friends of ours at church lived in. And he had a nice basketball court and he That's had a insane. son. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it was it was cool. But... So you tried to hit him up and play basketball, and he was yeah. like, get the fuck out of here? No, not that. Uh, he was, like, he was like cool and all, but I heard from our neighbors that I guess he wasn't the nicest person. Yeah, I mean, you can't just, like, bullshit the karate kid, so... It's also weird that this famous child teenage actor lives in the suburbs of New York City on Long Island, so... What's weird about it? It just would not be the ideal place that you'd think a celebrity would live like maybe the hamptons or something but this was just one of the neighborhoods of long island you know mm. not like really super rich people well if you live on long island i guess you're super rich compared to the rest of the world but you know there's like six figures rich and then there's like seven figures rich you know yeah I hear you. i've never been to long island so i didn't know not really how much trashy there. let's was. yeah let's talk about the <laughs> 80s though because this new york of the 80s felt so 80s for me and I've been thinking a lot about uh New York City at this time where there was like a garbage strike in the beginning of the 80s and so there's this element of like dirtiness of 1980s and then 1975 New York was going to be like bankrupt so there's this element that New York City was going to be like in the gutter and I think this movie sort of captures some of that if and it reminded me a lot of the Warriors, um, the 1979 film, where it's a dystopian type of film where people thought New York City was just going to be this neighborhoods run by like gangbangers, you know, and yeah. that was going to be the norm and New York City subways were just going to be a total trash. Like go look up like 1980s, 1970s New York subways, there's graffiti everywhere and there's this element of like deterioration that people thought it was going to be destroyed. And that didn't happen. But I think a lot of New York City flavor was gone um, when that didn't happen as well, because there's this whole nasty history of Giuliani coming in um, and sort of cleaning up the city, but cleaning up the city or at this time, you know, Reagan cleaning up the city involved just destroying lots of culture and putting people in prison. I remember watching some like expose on New York in the 80s or something and it was just like like if you haven't been mugged you're not a real New Yorker. Like that was the like the lay of the land like as it was being told in this documentary. I can't quite remember what it was, but I think they sort of captured that like like very small overcrowded energy, but they also like they made New York feel really small. You know, I mean, I get that it's a movie, but like anybody who lives in New York tells me like anytime I've ever visited a friend in New York and I'm like, hey, I'm in Soho, just come see me. And they're like, dude, I live in Astoria. I live like they like they're acting like I'm like miles and miles away. And so I, I, I vividly remember in this movie where he just like stumbles upon the club. <laughs> it's like how, you you just walked there. Like how far apart are all of these things from each other? Like where it just so happens that, you know, I mean, it's a movie and it's it was probably like a low budget at the time. So they're like, you need to just go around the corner. But there were no real scenes of him like taking the subway or taking a taxi or anything like that. Like everything that he needed to do was in a, a walking radius. Yeah, New York City was way, way smaller in the 80s for sure. Yeah, let's get into the summary. So just a basic summary for our listeners. There will be spoilers for all of this. So if you have We should not, not have to give a spoiler. It, it came out in 1985. 
hey, listen, neither of us had seen it, and this is right up both of our alleys, so I'm giving a spoiler warning. Okay, fine, go ahead. Okay. So Leroy Green, who is a young martial artist living in New York City, trains and teaches uh, Kung Fu and using the films of Bruce Lee and his master, and to reach the final level called The Glow. You'll hear us refer to The Glow a bunch in, in this uh, podcast. After saving TV personality Laura, played by the wonderful Vanity, um, from the video arcade Mongol, Eddie Arcadian, which is funny because he runs arcades, and his last name is Arcadian, uh, Leroy now it finds himself sort of the love interest of Laura and becomes her bodyguard. Um, but amidst all that, he has now created an enemy of Eddie Arcadian, and he has another enemy, the fantastic, wonderful Shogun of Harlem, Show Enough. And Show Enough is trying to be the top dog, the master of all masters, and fight and prove himself by defeating Leroy Green, who is often uh, referred to as Bruce Leroy because Bruce <laughs> Lee is so important to him. I mean, this just proves that even if you meditate every day and mind your own business, you will still have enemies out here. I think that was the real lesson that we learned with The Last Dragon. Yeah, there's the haters are always going to be there. All right, first impressions, go for it. Oh, I loved it. Like I said earlier, I it defied every stereotype from the mixed martial arts because, you know, black people, we're seen as like, y'all are aggressive, always fighting, but this is just a different light because, you know, Bruce Leroy was not violent. He can fight, but he is not a violent person. He's also a black man. So it was, it just shattered every stereotype of like these hypersexualized black men. He got to be a man, but also he got to be you know, gentle and kind and naive about sex. So I, I really think that the whole movie was just a breath of fresh air. And I'm sure it was like insane to do something like that in 1985. So I was, I was, let me think when I really sat up in my seat, I always have a sit up in my seat moment, moment even with books. I think I sat up in my seat when I saw him eating popcorn with chapsticks. Oh, I was like, this is going to be a different kind of movie because this is hilarious. What, what were your first impressions? I mean, honestly, it has high rewatchable value. There are so many little things that you miss the first time. And we're going to bring up some of those. But if you go back, there are moments where you're going to want to pause, read something on screen that you're going to want to like look a little bit closer. There's this weird like piranha. like I think it's like a hairy piranha that eats massive spoiled meat but you don't really see it so you want to go back and check that out there are all these little ridiculous characters that are so powerful but they have almost zero speaking lines but they're really fun to just look at the other thing i kept on thinking about is uh, when i listen to black cosplayers or um, share about their experiences they're often frustrated because there's not a lot of black characters that they feel comfortable you know, portraying, right? That they can um, sort of show up to conventions. And this film provides very strong characters very for black strong. cosplayers to go for and embody. Yeah. And that was like one of those waha moments. And it's just timeless too. Like the fashion, every character, you know, I really appreciate this as a, uh, a comedian. Every character was on level 10. Like, 
every character had these either a funky accent or a cool costume or some just sort of like level 10 style element and you just don't see that in movies anymore you see very like you know Nicole Kidman like it's it's subtle it's it's the little like some of the most popular shows on TV right now are like The Crown or Big Little Lies or you know Little Fires Everywhere and all of the interactions are very subtle and we, and we know what's happening and there's a lot of emotion there but I sort of miss the campiness of this big like you won't fight me like all of that so like that was really nice to see because like when's the last time you ever, actually, except for when we watched Drag Race when's the last time you saw some like real campiness in a movie you're right even shows that I love science fiction fantasy shows you look at the show like The Expanse there's there's not this like mustache twirling villain in the expanse there are villains in the expanse and there are terrorists in the expanse and there are characters who have nuance in the expanse but all the character interactions are not like elevated to level 10 you know there or even game of thrones where you do have you could have very strong comedic over-the-top characters you don't all of them are just like sipping wine and having backdoor conversations. It's way more smaller as far as emotion go. So good yeah. point. I didn't even think about that. I, I think about, you know, this year I've gotten so many, I've gotten rejected from so many um, auditions. It's fun. But one that I... actor. Right. I said I said earlier as an actor. I, oh, I feel sorry. like literally every podcast I say as an actor. If you don't know right now, I am a full-time yoga teacher, full-time actor. So I be doing a lot. But one casting call I got, do you remember this, Ben? Because Ben always has to be my reader or in the scene some way, somehow. I got a casting call that wanted me to, like, the reference was, like, the original Batman series or something. It was like, holy smokes, Batman. And I was like, what? I, I have no frame of reference for this. And you sort of, like, pulled it up and showed me. And I was like, I've never seen anything like this. Do you remember that? I had to throw, like, mm -hmm. a bucket of water on your head and... It was just very like campy over the top thing and it was just so much fun. And I remember in that moment thinking like, it's like, this is what I really signed up to do, like to be stupid and funny. And like one of my biggest inspirations as a comedian is like Carol Burnett. And I just love that like Miss Hannigan over the top character work. And I feel like lots of movies from the 80s have that. Whereas now we've moved into a whoever can be the most subtle is is going to get the job. Just saying. Yeah, there is not a whole lot of subtlety in this at There's all. I want to talk subtlety. about Barry Gordy the third, I think. Barry Gordy the third. Because there's a song in here called Rhythm of the Night, and it was released when The Last Dragon was released. Barry Gordy, for those who did not know, uh, he started Motown. Oh, yeah. Yeah, know your history. Yeah, can you? I, well, I was hoping you would sing Rhythm of the Night. Oh, I'm going to drop a clip here, but I want people to know how great of a singer I am. So I'm going to sing like, for the beat of the rhythm of the night. Yeah. And then I'm going to drop the clip. So they're going to see how closely those are related. Which is strange because I think more people know that song than The Last Dragon. Like I knew that song. When I heard it, I was like, oh, I know the song, but I did not know The Last Dragon, which made me sad. I would have loved this as a kid. This movie would have meant everything to me as a kid. I really am considering like showing this to fifth graders. I, mean, I think you should. I think they say, I need to rewatch it again in that lens as like a fifth grade teacher lens and see how many times they say shit. I think they say shit and ass and 
there's a character Richie who's Leroy's younger brother mm, who is babe. yeah who is like really um he's really uh, charismatic charismatic but also wise beyond his years yes, as far as sex- sexual things we'll get to that I do want to <laughs> because going straight into themes there where Richie is wait what part what part made you like sit up in your seat I think it was the part in the beginning. There's a montage where Bruce Leroy breaks an arrow <laughs> because his master's shooting bow and arrows. And I was like, oh my God, if I would have saw this as a kid, I would have been like, this is the coolest thing ever. He like is catching the arrows and then he's breaking them with his hand and actually doing all the moves, right? So I'm like, here is a man who is a who has studied Kung Fu, knows Kung Fu. That sort of blew my mind. But even despite like going into the themes, there's this theme of innocence. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Leroy is very meditative. He even runs his own dojo, which is sort of a, you know, what you call a school for like karate or kung fu. And he's very wise, but there's still this level of innocence. And his brother Richie is like, you know, you're not black enough. I think at one point he tells them and he says, you know, this ridiculous you know, whole thing, and you're never going to get girls this way, and he sort of talks about um, him knowing how to, like, pleasure girls, and I'm like, here, there's this, like, this... Like his younger brother. Yeah, who's, like, in seventh grade or whatever. It's and like, it, I got the moves. I'll show you. Which I, like, we love a character like that. Like, we love, like, Arnold from from um, Different Strokes. Just this, like, wise little... You remember Gary Coleman in Different Strokes? It's no, like, what you I've never about? seen uh, You've never seen Strokes. Different Strokes? Yeah. But you've heard the like, what you talking about, Willis? Say what or something? Say uh, what? I think you might be referencing like Dynamite, like okay. Kid Dynamite from Good Times. Maybe. So these are two different groups of people. So in different strokes, this is super quick. There's a little brother. His name is Arnold. Arnold is who sells the show. It's like Steve Urkel who is sells Family Matters, and Arnold is always he's like a little adult man. And Willis is his older brother. And he'll be like, Arnold, what you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And then Arnold will be like, what you talking about, Willis? And that's like the the famous line from the show. Yeah. And it's and they've been, you know, adopted by this white rich dude named Mr. Drummond. It's a it's a it's a vibe, actually. It's really a vibe. Um, but Richie has a lot of Arnold vibes. It's Got just it. like a very like little grown up. I love, love, love those kids. And that's like why Richie is one of my favorite characters. But yes. He is the one sort of trying to teach his older brother, who's like innocent, how to be like a Mac Daddy. Yeah, or I think he's not even worried about teach. I don't think he even teaches him or worried about teaching him. I think he just mocks him for not being able to do that. But there is a great line where after Bruce Leroy saves Laura, he's sort of developing feelings for Laura and his super awkward like trips over a sofa at one point. But there's a point where they're driving together and, you know, Bruce Leroy looks over and says to Laura, like, hey, I have a question. I mean, this is not for me, but it's for a friend. Yeah, ask it for a friend. Yeah, like, how do you, you know, make the moves? You know, how do you show people moves? And he's so innocent. And there's this, like, beauty to this because I think oftentimes we think of men being, like, the people, especially you know, 80s, 90s. What do you mean men being the people? The people who make the moves. Or, like, they're the sexually, like, they're the sexual aggressive kinds of people. And in this moment, he doesn't know. Like, he's, like, the shy, you know, the shy little boy. 
And he's black. He's a black man. And that sort of disrupts that stereotype. It's interesting, too, just because, like, what we ultimately learn with this whole movie is that being yourself is the moves. And it's it's just a nice poetic justice because he is he is such himself. And also his so he's like a teenager. Bruce Leroy is. And even his parents are like very supportive of his ways and his meditative, cooling, like very restrained personality. Like he he sees the spirituality in everything and gives thanks to all of the beings when he's just like about to eat a meal, like a, like a form of a grace or something like that. And his parents are like, we love this. Like we, we have no problems out of you. Yes, you know how to like snap somebody's neck in half, but you would never do it because you're so restrained. And, you know, the yogi in me was like, oh, this is so great because you found this thing that makes you feel like powerful and badass in your body, but you still have that like yin and yang balance of the softer side. I love how this movie isn't colorblind at all. For example, Mama and Papa Green, they own a pizza shop. And uh, there's this point where Richie is sort of, you know, insulting um Bruce Leroy at the dinner table and Papa Green leans over and he says, you know, let, let, you know, Leroy do what he wants to do. You know, I'm a black man who opened a pizza shop, you know, people who would have thought that could have happened to me. And so there's this, a lot of this inversion of racial stereotypes. Um, I mean, this whole movie is a metaphor for that because it's like, we have a black director Shout out to you, Michael Schultz. I'm sure you had to fight, fight, fight to get this movie made, but you did it. Um, we have a black man directing a kung fu movie, and it's one of the most epic ones ever created. So, like, this whole movie is just, like, busting through ceilings, physically and metaphorically. Yeah, I want to talk about the bust stuff, like, some of the, the, the violence in this, because... You know, you mentioned camp, like there, some of the violence is pretty campy, but there are some scenes that were emotionally like really disturbing. For example, Shonuff, uh, who is trying to get Bruce Leroy to fight him, he does two things that are just awful. And you were like, you were like shouting at the TV. You were I was like, like very that's em- enough. You Not were very enough. emotionally <laughs> bothered by this. And one of them is Shonuff shows up at the pizza shop. And we've already started to learn what this pizza pizza shop is to this family and starts to just destroy things in the pizza shop. A small blight business. He just went in there and just like raising hell. All because he wants to fight. Like he's the bully that just wants to bully. I was awful. But one of the greatest scenes in that is that Papa Green is like, okay, like we're not going to do anything. I don't want you know, my family to get hurt. And Mama Green says, hell no. She starts throwing pizza dough. Yes. It's like, who knew pizza dough could just be such a powerful weapon? And it's funny. She like hits one guy in the face and they're like, what? I loved that. I love the dad being like, we will use nonviolence. And I love the mom being like, bitch, this is my shop too. Like, fuck, I will fuck all of y'all up. Like it was, it was a moment. I was like, this is actually like so quintessential black woman. I'm glad that this you know, stayed in the movie. Because they could have both just been like, oh, maybe we should... Like, in the attempt to... What was it you just said? Like, invert all of the stereotypes. They could have easily had her sort of be, you know, not the angry black woman. But it kind of fit very perfectly in the 
in this, you know, melee of the fight. Well, yeah, I think it was, I think it worked appropriately because one, she is also in the attire. She's also cooking the pizzas with her husband, right? Mm -hmm. So right away, we see that this woman has agency in the sense that she is actively part of this business. Two, she starts throwing the pizza when Shonuff's squad... Um, <laughs> I just like hearing you say that. Shonuff's yeah. squad uh, takes her one son, Richie, and is about to like dump him in, dump him in a trash can, right? Like mm-hmm. it's very like so awful. She went into mama yeah. bird mode. Yeah, and then also... Um, and then also when her shop started to be destroyed, right? It wasn't because she, you know, someone insulted her or did this. She was protecting her place of business and she was protecting her children. Period. Like, and I think that is a very different kind of like anger that we often think of when we think of the angry black woman stereotype. By the way, there's a lot of women with agency in here because at one point you're like, that's what I would do for... This scene where um, uh, Laura is like almost kidnapped and Bruce Leroy shows up. I mean, yes, like Bruce Leroy came and did help. But before, you know, he shows up to help, Laura like kicks people in the nuts. Laura got some licks in. Laura got some punches in. She did really well. She hit the shit out of some people with her bag. I was like, okay, she's actually creating a nice... She's doing very well. And then you were saying, like, oh, she's doing okay. She was holding her own. Like, we're not just going to act like she was a damsel in distress. That's that's just what I'm saying. She she did not play damsel in distress. She was like, I'm going to fight until they kill me. And thankfully, they did not. Yeah, it sort of reminded me when that... You know, that homeless man, you know, tried to fight you. Yeah, why don't you tell, like, a 30-second story about what happened? Basically, um, this guy, I think he was on drugs or homeless or whatever, Mm -hmm. said something really rude to you and some other people. And I, you know, stepped in, said something, and then he said something, and then he walks away. Then he came back and tried to find us. And um, anything what resulted is, like, you swinging and, like, punching and me trying to... And then you yeah. getting hit. In yeah, the I did fate. like way worse damage. Like I, I made it worse. But you were just you but were I swinging. Was in attack you were, mode. You I were was, in attack mode. I probably really. hit you. I, I, yeah. Who knows what? Like but, somebody, somebody needs to run that footage back so I could be like, did I get a couple of? I actually, I think there is footage of it because it was right near a security camera. Man, that what a great. I mean, I. That's somewhere on the internet somewhere. That is you, definitely like deranged woman like swinging at ghosts <laughs> like at everybody but this person. But that's what you do. You go into full swing and a miss mode when you are literally attacked. And, right. and Laura did much better than me, I just have to say. The other um, element of like women having agency is that there's this character, Angela. And sort of a plot point to this is Angela is... I guess like a Cindy Lauper type of character who has a great song where she's singing about finding her like, you know, loves interests like porn magazines and it's really wompy and gross yeah. and yeah. just wonderful. And how does she talk? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like very... it's kind of like, I wish I could remember a quote from it, but I'll, I'll drop a clip. Yeah. She's wonderful, and at one point, her boyfriend, uh, Arcadian, Eddie Arcadian, is trying to get Laura, who is this TV host, to have Angela on her show so Angela can become famous. And at one point, Angela just gets fed up with Eddie Arcadian, 
you know, trying to use her to get famous. And it's like, I don't want you to kidnap people. I don't want you to hurt people. And she fucking leaves. Oh, she, she didn't just leave. They had an epic sparring of words. Remember, I, I was would... like, okay, Malcolm and Marie. Because he was She's like, like, you're using yeah, my yeah, tits. Yes. Yeah. He was like, you know, you think you're famous? I don't know, I'm famous. Yeah, you're just using your tits to get everywhere. And she's like, and you're using my tits, Eddie. <laughs> like, it, it was just a great. That's that's not her accent, but I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, also from Kew Gardens. And also getting by on my tits. Where do you think you're going? I love her. I love her voice. Again, the voice, the voice actor, the actor in me was like, that is a unique voice if I ever heard one. And she's about to, she too, even with that like high pitched voice trying to play the girly girl, like you would think she would fall into the damsel in distress category, but she does not. She's like, no, motherfucker, I'm going to leave you. And I don't care if you're, you know, if I trusted you with my career, like it's it's not worth it to me. This movie had some strong women in it. I, I really appreciate you for that, Michael Schultz. The other thing I want to talk about is the a way some of the characters use racial stereotypes to their benefit. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was super nuanced and very meta in the fact that this is coming out in the 80s. For example, there's a character, Johnny Wu who is part of Bruce Leroy's dojo. And uh, Johnny Wu's whole thing is like, I've mastered the art of fighting by not know, not knowing how to fight. And so Johnny Johnny Wu says like, I am this, the, the token oriental, and so I just make really loud noise and swing my fists around, and that's how I fight. So I can scare people by them thinking that I know Kung Fu, even though I don't. And I thought like, huh, like that... Sounds very, like, just, I, I know it's just different. And there's another time that happens as well, where Leroy, who is trying to find the final level to routine, to reach the attainment of the glow, and he has to go to this place called the Sumdum Goy, which is a place where fortune cookies are made. And one of the way he gets in there is by, like, pretending to be, like, a soul brother who knows how to shoot craps to, like teach these three stooges, these like three Chinese stooges who go back and forth like speaking Chinese and, and then, like a little bit of a black scent. And then like yeah. using black scent. It's a very weird scene. Yeah. yeah, that one was like, what's happening here? But basically the way Leroy sort of scams them to, you know, get to the dumb dumb goy master is pretending to be like your stereotypical black person. Yeah. Which I thought was like what? Like, how how were people thinking about race like this in the 80s in film, right? Maybe in academia, but the fact that this translated to a film was baffling to me. I really enjoyed the the Johnny Woo being like, well, they're already afraid of me, so I'm just going to, like, add another level of that. Like, I'm going to play on people's biases. Because I've seen, you know, comically in college, we would do stuff like that. We would get on an elevator with some, like, white people and then one of us would like scream boo or something like it's like there are like you yeah i didn't do it but something you know i've been with people who would do stuff like that and you can't be mad you're just kind of like they're already afraid of us like let's just like keep them being afraid you know and and it's hilarious because 
in that moment, I mean, anybody would jump after being yelled boo in their face, but there's an added element of like, I've been the monster in your life the whole time, so let me just play on your fear for a second. Yeah, I. it's really important to think about because to what extent are individuals held accountable for using stereotypes and and then capitalizing on stereotypes in a racist political structure right to get what they want um yeah i mean you know how many casting calls i get and it's like urban say say like be like this you know it's just like well, I do want the check. It's hard. It's it's a uh, this is different because yeah. this wasn't so much. This was so, more about like self movement as opposed to like let me just be my blackest version of myself to get this job. But like that's sometimes just what it takes. Yeah, I I think like a, maybe a, it's different from like the shuck and drive. The minstrelsy is what I'm tapping. I'm talking right. about. Right. So it, it'd be like that. it'd be like gangster rap, right? Where mm-hmm. a lot of the you know NWA, right? They're singing and you know saying like "fuck the police" and like shooting at the police and all these things, and they are capitalizing on that stereotype. Yeah. And they're not. They're definitely not shucking and jiving. Right. Not at all. But they're using. One, in some sense, they're using their lived experience, but on another sense, NWA wasn't going out and, like, shooting up cop cars, right? Right. I mean, it's like in a... I mean, and some rappers are, like, still doing the work of all those things Uh, and rapping, but, like, there is a level of, like, leaning into an aesthetic that people already assume about you because it's like, you know who does this brilliantly? Dolly Parton. She's like, if I make fun of myself and I tell the jokes and I let people call me a blonde-haired bimbo with huge tits, like... I'm I'm owning the narrative now. Now it works for me. Well, I, in some ways, like yes, and but Dolly Parton is also a musical genius and right. a, and a musical, um, you know, an incredible songwriter. Well, and that's so, why it works because the juxtaposition of the the huge boobs and the blonde hair with the profundity that is Dolly Parton, like that's why it works. Yeah. Well, it I, wouldn't work if she wasn't yeah, a I, genius, but it also maybe wouldn't work if she was just a genius. NWA, mm-hmm. they're geniuses, yeah, and they're telling a narrative. And when when is it? When are you leaning into the racial stereotype to sell albums, to see, to present yourself as dangerous? Um, compared to like, when are you telling a story about? this stereotype right Right. well i think nwa's aesthetic is a based on lived experience and b when you get into these markets of like marketability you have to you know really amplify whatever you're doing because they're going to put you in boxes it's like it needs to either be gangster rap or like yeah or not because you know at that time there were no title the creator katronata you know, prototypes, like everything. It's like, if you are a rapper, you need to be talking about selling dope, getting pussy, drinking Hennessy, like, cause that's what this genre, it, it's not all, but, but now you see like gangster rap and poetry rap artists which, and, and drill and. Which NWA, I feel like led that breakout. Like they yeah. were both, they were like, we can do both of these things. I mean, I would just think, I I think NWA just does gangster rap. I don't I don't know if they led the breakout. I don't know enough about music to know I, if they I led mean, the breakout. Well, like the song like Fuck the Police, right? How is that breaking out of gangster rap? 
Because you're not, you're, you're talking about... Oh, you mean like the politicizing? Yeah, that okay. you're talking about a political organization whose sole purpose is to keep black people in line or, you know, who started out going yeah. and capturing slaves. So for me, that felt like a very, like, political song. But then you'll hear some lines that are incredibly, like, misogynistic. And you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, I think it's just like you get people in with one thing, with your aesthetic, and you leave them there with the actual brilliance of it, which is the same in The Last Dragon, right? Like, you, like when you Google The Last Dragon, well, right now, Ray and The Last Dragon comes up. And when you Google The Last Dragon, which was awesome, when you Google The Last Dragon 1985... The first thing you see on Google Images is these insane costumes and these high karate kicks, which was what drew us in as well. And then you sit down and you see what's happening. And you're like, oh, this is why this is a classic, because there's something more exciting that has to be said here. But the aesthetic is what drew me in. Well, yeah, no, no, I think I mean, I think we're talking about a different issue. I'm talking about the two very specific moments where Johnny Wu uses Asian stereotypes to his benefit. Mm -hmm. And then the moment where Bruce Leroy uses black stereotypes to his benefit. Right. And to what extent is using a stereotype harming the larger culture even though it's helping you in that individual moment that's what i'm talking about i'm not talking about like you know all those things yeah those are yes to all those things i'm talking about to what responsibility does an individual have for using a stereotype to their advantage because all these stereotypes are harmful but since we live in a certain kind of society where you at times need to do that it's a it's an important ethical question that i think people of color specifically have to think about you know that's sort of a unique question right because there's really no stereotype that white people lean into that's harmful to the larger white society right right? there is that because (laughs) white people get to be individuals right but there's also white stereotypes as well but because i lean into that white stereotype that doesn't hurt the rest it doesn't really hurt other people right but because but that's because of what i just said you would never do something and then i'm like I would maybe say like, uh, white people, but it wouldn't, but there are some things like, no, Ben did this. Whereas sometimes when I do things, I'm not sure about like towards you, but to people that don't know me, that feels very much like, oh, black people don't eat this, you know? Yeah. I think it really comes down to to this whole question that I think that we often talk about maybe with your parents sometimes is that your parents coming from an older generation, your grandparents, they have this understanding that it is black folks' responsibility to disrupt stereotypes. When in actuality, the stereotype is coming from white people. Right. So how do you stop stereotypes that you are not responsible for? And that's why I think what Johnny Wu is doing is like fine and perfect. And it's just like, I'm just taking what I was, the, the cards that I was dealt. I'm just doing the, my, the best that I can do with, because they're going to have the stereotype of me, whether I do or don't. So I think it's brilliant, you know, but, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. I want to talk about one last sort of stereotype is the Asian stereotypes. There's a great book that just came out. Um, Charles Yu uh, wrote a book called Interior Chinatown, looking at a lot of the Asian stereotypes and he, you know, I've been standing Charles Yu for a while, but this book... Oh, you've I, been standing? Yeah, oh, oh okay. absolutely. So he, uh, his first book was How to Survive Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Love that book. 
Uh, he also was one of the writers on Westworld. So Charles Yu, writing this book in 2020, addressing Asian stereotypes head-on, specifically East Asian stereotypes head-on in interior Chinatown, is really telling because this movie from 1985 is also addressing that. And uh, a lot of kung fu movies, especially like movie, kung fu movies starring white people as like the young kid who, you know, gets trained from the sensei. The sensei, I think Karate Kid, doesn't really have much of a personality. Like that sort of, <laughs> that is a stereotype. And basically there's these been studies that have been done where people assume that Asian people are industrious, hardworking, but they lack personality and lack charm. Mm. Right. That, mm -hmm. that is a stereotype. And the fact that this is sort of now being really dealt with is interesting, considering in 1985, you have three stooges, like very like campy, three Asian characters appropriating, in this case, maybe misappropriating black culture and acting like soul brothers. Right. Yeah. And using that language. But still, that itself is like flipping the script. Also, uh, <laughs> One of my favorite lines is that uh, Leroy's master doesn't have a name, but is like packing up to leave. And Leroy's like, oh, is your work done here or whatever? Are you going on a, a, a great quest or a journey? Yeah. And what does he say? He's like, no, I'm going to visit my mom in Miami. <laughs> like, I'm going on vacation. I'm. A, this is my career and I need a break. Like, I, that was so nice to see. And that's, yeah, that shows like personality and charm that this you know, the sage character, the sensei, oh, has a mom. Oh, the mom is retired in Florida. Oh, like this is yeah. a whole, there's a whole character arc here instead of just, I am here purely to bring you to the next level of the last dragon. That's so bizarre how that stereotype was created because when I sit here and think about even the people that, and I know that is a true stereotype, but when I sit here and think about the people, the Asian actors I've seen in movies, like none of them fit that description. Like I'm trying to, I bet if I went back and looked at things, but even like Charlie's Angels, Lucy Liu, or even everybody that we have today, it's just like Aquafina, like huge personality. So it's very interesting. Like what is her name? Sandra Oh? I don't know. I just, I never thought that that would be, I know that it is one, or I know this like model minority is a stereotype, but even Jackie Chan and all the Rush Hour movies had so much personality. So that's bizarre and sad. Oh my gosh, remember the little child that we saw crying in the video? Uh, Minari just came out. We're gonna watch it on A24 mm. soon, but this video of this young kid who won a Critics' Choice Award yeah. just went viral because he was just like so filled with emotion and joy. And, and he's like, oh my God, am I crying right now? Is this a dream? And it was just a kid receiving an award. And it's super, I mean, all, all stereotypes are shitty and bad. And it's, I, I'm just curious about how that one came to be. I want to ask you about a couple of other things because the, I'm going to call them the three stooges of the some dumb goy. So basically, Leroy is told to reach the next level, he needs to search out the Sum Dum Goy Master. And it turns out the Sum Dum Goy Master is just this computer who like shoots out fortune cookies. And one of the... <laughs> he, I had to Another go, stereotype. You're like, oh, we were expecting to see some master who can like levitate yeah. or whatever. And it's and, like, this is just the machine. <laughs> so when he goes back, he like yells at his master. He's like, I thought, you know, this was going to bring me, you know, the last 
dragon. Oh, you're talking about Bruce Leroy. Leroy goes back to his master, says, I found the Sumdum Coin Master. It was just a computer. And and he says, no, you know, the last dragon has always been inside you to have the power, internally find the power. However, the Sumdum Coin Master, if you pause when you see the Sumdum Coin Master, um, there's the computer. a the computer if there's you this pause blinking the TV. yeah okay. you have to pause the tv it's really quick you see this blinking and there's a fortune cookie on it and i am going to read you this fortune cookie i had to go back on youtube and watch it and i want you to tell me what does it mean as someone who loves chinese food you, this will qualify you to know this All right <laughs> he who is colorblind must never follow a horse of another color Ooh, what does that mean well i i remember a horse of a different color was what was referenced in the Wizard of Oz. You remember that? Oh. It was like, oh, though that's a horse of a different color. And then they made they made the horse like physically change from like red to blue to green or something like that. So, a horse of a different color means like strange or odd or uncanny. So he who is colorblind should never follow a horse of a different yeah, color. Must never. Must. Must never. never. So maybe it's like, you shouldn't be, like, even if you have You're doing great, a deficit, You're doing great. you shouldn't, <laughs> like, think or follow someone different. I don't know. I'm, you, I'm not making I would any give sense. You, I would give you a passing grade. Now, here's my, here's <laughs> my round, thesis. You're rounding up for me. Here, here's my thesis for this. So he who is colorblind must never follow a horse of another color. Kim Kardashian. Okay. Ugh. Comes down to Kim Kardashian. So Kim Kardashian might claim, right, that she's colorblind. She actually might claim, I'm colorblind. I don't see race. I don't judge people on race. You know, I even have a black husband. You know, I don't really know how that relationship yeah, is going. Yeah, she recently filed for divorce. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I figured. Yeah. But anyway, however, at the same time, she's actually following a horse of another color because she's literally physically changing herself. Her presentation is all appropriating black culture. Okay. Bam. That's what it's saying. And I think that is going to have a, a that's going to have a kickback at some point in the future for her. I think her kids are going to grow up sort of despising her because she's going to not, she's not going to be able to see them in as being like black children, possibly. I don't know. And maybe mean, people so like that. It's so hard because this movie was not set in the context of people claiming to be colorblind. Well, I think this movie is way beyond. Oh, it's way years. beyond its years. But like, was that even a thing before? Back then? Before that, to be colorblind is to be born without the ability to see certain hues. And so, someone could easily be tricked into following something very vibrant and uncanny. So I, I, I'm sort of reading this. In a 2020 lens. Yes. Anyway. And it's 2021. 2021. That is. That is. But I think (laughs) that that the very fact that you could like go back and pause and like read the computer for me was like, oh, there's so much in here. So many gems. I'm sure people who have seen this a million times, you're going to call us and be like, yo, you didn't even talk about these 50 billion things. All right. I want to go over some. Uh, characters that we haven't talked about really a whole lot. Okay. Uh, so one of the characters, uh, Ty, sort of at the end of the movie, there's this big battle and... Huge melee. Huge, we loved it. Huge melee and obviously 
Bruce Leroy has to fight Shonoff, who's been hired by Eddie Arcadian. And Shonoff actually has the glow already, but it's only in his fist. And then finally, at the last moment, Bruce Leroy gets the glow in his entire body, probably even on his penis, because it's everywhere. <laughs> and then he beats up Shonoff and, like, catches a bullet with his mouth. It's Take that, Star Wars. Awesome. You remember yeah. when I was like, oh my god, this is like lightsabers, but like times 20. Times 20 the, because the, the glow. Yes. Oh, it was incredible. So much fun. But there's a character, Ty, who was like the cutest little kid ever. Ty is part of Leroy's dojo and just like tears that kid was it up. Whooping ass. Yeah, and like he was 12 years old. I looked him up, Ty, 12 years old, and was a karate, you know, protege and was like kicking people in the balls, doing backflips, like crazy, awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. You and, have to show this to your kids oh. because Ty was just like the perfect, like, I mean, he single-handedly fought. Most of the final battle is Ty and I don't get tired of it. I, I could watch this kid fight all freaking day and he's the cutest little thing and he's kind and he's like down with the shits. That's the great thing. I love movies that have actual kid actors in them. So like the Goonies and all that. And uh, yeah, it was just super adorable. So that's just a final character I, oh I want to bring up that we haven't really talked about. Last thing on the kids, because we talked about this amongst ourselves earlier. So Richie has a crush on Laura, who is, uh, you know, the radio DJ host or whatever. And the movie did a really good job playing with that crush element, but and but not you know, leaning into pedophilia, which was very refreshing because we've seen it not done so well. So like at the end of the movie, Richie unties her and, and, and Richie saves her, but there are still boundaries because this is an adult. And so it just made me like really have, really reminded me this, like, it's not that hard to do the whole, like, because when we were kids, we all had crushes on some adults, you know? and needed some little sign of like, ah, they saw me, they noticed me without crossing a line. And I, we saw this done poorly in blank check. We talked about that this morning where like the little kid Preston goes on a date with this lady and then he like, she like kisses him in the end of the movie. And that's when it's like, as a kid, I was like, oh my God, he got the girl. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, did they just really have a grown ass lady like kissing a middle schooler? Like, no. I tried I, I the same thing about the Sandlot, even though that dynamic was like a little bit different. But I think this movie did a really good job. You you were trying to fight me earlier about the Sandlot. Oh, yeah. I was saying in the Sandlot, I think we're led to believe that it's a middle schooler and a high schooler. Yeah. They're like four or five years apart where this was like a she 33. She looked grown to me. And we know that later he married. Yeah, they married Wendy and have Peppercorn. like thir 13 kids or whatever. But I'm sure, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that sort of specific instance. I do know that pedophilia um, for most <laughs> yeah. of... Pedophilia, sad. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it was... Pedophilia has been accepted by Western culture for a, a while, right? When you think of uh, Lewis Carroll and the fact that he took nude pictures like of Woody Alice. Um, yeah, well... There's yeah, a new, Woody, real Woody, bad Woody Allen documentary out now. Yeah, Woody, Woody Allen or... Um, I, I don't know, like... Uh, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, um, that joke and what is it? Uh, terrible people. Remember? Terrible people. Where I'm literally shaking my head, don't. Well, let, let me let me just it's difficult people. 
Difficult people. I don't, I'm gonna cut this later. All right, well, you cut it, say what you want, but I, we were talking about this joke where um, the, one of the main characters makes a tweet about if Blue Ivy was old enough for R. Kelly to piss on her, piss on her, right? Absolutely terrible. She gets all this like kickback. And I was thinking about that today. And I think even for so many people, right? They would, they who support and love Beyonce, they would also support and love R. Kelly. Yeah. And that, that tweet, that joke pins to the point that you cannot do both. Yeah. I'm sorry. You cannot do both. And I know it's like, they got a lot of, they got a lot of, what is difficult people. They got a lot of shit for making that. But yeah. the very fact that people were upset, it's like, no, you cannot, you cannot support Beyonce and R. Kelly because, because that can, that joke or that tweet or whatever connects the two in this really like horrific gut wrenching way. And difficult people did that a lot. They, every single episode, they made a Kevin Spacey joke. They were constantly calling people yep. out when a lot of people were not willing to go there. But in this case of pedophilia, I think when we really think about that in Western culture specifically, you know, I think just or human culture, I don't think we've really protected kids in the same way from like aggressive yeah. adults, you know, and there's a, another show out called A Teacher where it's about a teacher sort of, you know, having sex with her high school student like this happens. And what what in our culture allows this to happen and this this film, you know, avoids doing that, but oh, toes sure. the line at one point, right? Because it, you do have a kid who is in love with like an adult, right? Uh, presumably someone who's no longer in high school, not a teenager. And that mm-hmm. I was really glad that they avoided that and didn't do something like blank check. Yeah, because they always do something like, oh, well, I'll give you a kiss, little man, for saving the day. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, no, we don't need the, no. <laughs> and this movie did not do that. So I'm just very grateful for that. Let's get into the size. size. So I don't really have any size about this film, but Vanity, um, the person who played Laura, ended up becoming a drug addict, was into coke, just really suffering. Damn, um, drag her. Yeah, and well, su- <laughs> I said suffering. Yeah, but like you know, because Vanity was like a kid, it became popular at yeah, like a teen, was I mean, a, a was a people... singer, and that just overwhelmed them. I mean, this is a kind of movie that like was such a big hit that like I was saying this earlier we were looking at uh Bruce Leroy's Instagram his name his real name is Ty and he no, said to me to make yeah well I mean he shortened it on his Instagram oh, okay. to, to, okay. to say like Ty T-A-I I, I don't want to be confused with the char- the, I, the kid character Ty yeah sorry go all I'm saying is like he kind of doesn't have to do anything else after this I know that he was a kung fu master first and not so much an actor but like this role has made him the last dragon for life and when you have that level of fame at such a young age and probably exorbitant amounts of money to just even come speak or come to conventions you kind of don't know what to do with that unless you've been like trained and so all i'm saying is like sadly this probably happened to vanity which is not michael schultz's fault this has nothing to do with like stylistically the 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 artwork that he put together but yeah poor vanity well vanity was also a pop star before Mm -hmm. she was in this film right so she was popular before um acting she was known for a singer but i think because of this her drug addiction and just a lot of trauma that she dealt with being a child star a lot of child stars of the 80s went through this 
is that she became a born-again Christian and became like an evangelist basically and died fairly young she died when she was like 59 um which I thought was just like really sad and sigh like it's like you were she was talented she was a singer and the fact that she became a Christian and an event an evangelist going around converting people to colonialism felt for me just a huge waste of talent and creativity okay this is your personal vendetta against vanity it sounds like no no vanity well this movie is really old and it's so it's hard like you know we just saw it but i know we were very excited to be like where are these people today and you're like oh you're dead you were dead like sadly a richie my fave he too was like sadly like shot somewhere in New York and died at age like forty one. Like that's insane. I, I thought it, I thought it was a drug overdose. He I think w- it was like suspicious. He, he was he was shot at one point. Yeah, recovered. Was trying to get his life back online. Ugh. Online had actually met at one point with uh, Tay Mock. I think they were gonna do some sort of you know film together, and he just struggled. He struggled with. Uh, with drugs and he was again a child it's literally so many a, people a child actor I do want to I don't I'm not coming for vanity I think what the sigh for me the is that at this point I don't think we were protecting child actors I, oh, again I, again getting back to this whole idea of pedophilia like we don't protect yeah. you know, children Drew Barrymore talks all the time about like I did my first line of coke at like age nine I was a alcoholic by age 12 these kids get all this money and then they just get to go to like hollywood parties with adults and they just like fall apart like Corey feldman and all yeah. those star like you know the whole cast of stand by me and just it's, it's really sad when you look up these movies from the 80s and see what happened to these actors i think what is i guess healthy in some sense is that vanity found her social well-being and her social sanity through Christianity but I I just wish that there was mental health at that point to help them and and I'm thinking of some of the child actors that we know now thinking of the kids from Stranger Things and nice little 80s right I'm exactly I'm really curious how they're how they're going to grow up I'm wondering with the mental our understanding of mental health our understanding of education our understanding of being protection I wonder if the kids from the 80s 90s I'm thinking of uh, what Honey Pie, Honey Boy. Sorry, thinking of Honey Boy, uh, Shia LaBeouf. Same. Shia, same thing. I'm thinking of rehab. I wonder if we've learned as a, as a society to protect these children. Yeah. And I'm curious what that's going to look like for them 20 years from now, 20, 30 years from now. I think we should like you know even though that's sad about a lot of these child actors, this movie is awesome. And Ben, with that being said, I think it's time for you to warp up the show. In conclusion, The Last Dragon is not a film you can watch once. It's not a film that you can watch twice. You need to be watching this film three, four, five times. It is one of the most powerful fantasy kung fu films that I have ever seen. Go ahead and watch it. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Sci-Fi Side. Next week, we're watching another movie, baby. We're checking out Robert Townsend's Meteor Man. So we were just in the 80s, and now we're hopping on over to the 90s. So for episode 27, be sure to watch Meteor Man, and we will see y'all next time. Bye, y'all.
thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.